You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 40, airing on October 25th, 2012. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And if you are joining us for the very first time, welcome. We are so pleased to have you with us. And if you have downloaded this show or are listening by streaming, uh, we expect that you're probably someone that cares deeply about people, cares deeply about the issue of human trafficking, and looking for ways that you can study these issues more effectively to be a voice and to make a difference in helping end it. And Sandy and I are coming to you from Orange County, California. We're sponsored by the Global Center for Women and Justice, which is housed here at Vanguard University of Southern California. And uh, Sandy, I'm so glad to be back with you because we are going to be looking today again at domestic violence. Our last episode, we looked at the global perspective of domestic violence uh, with Dr. Sami from uh, Kyrgyzstan and Iraq, and he was here in studio. And today we're going to connect domestic violence and human trafficking here in America. And I, uh, we have a wonderful guest with us as well, too, who's going to bring, uh, I know, a, a wonderful perspective and expertise that will help us to learn more about this issue and help all of us to understand uh, more of the complexity around this, because there is a lot of complexity. It is so complicated, and it's important for us to find experts that can help us um, identify where those intersections with domestic violence and human trafficking occur right here in, in America. And I was fortunate enough to run across an article called Intimate Partner and Intrafamilial Exploitation, How the Intersections of Domestic Violence and Human Trafficking Can Profoundly Affect Our Work. It was in the National Violence and Human Trafficking, I'm sorry, it was in the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence annual publication. And so I looked up the writer, Becky Owens Bullard, and discovered that she does training and consultant on issues around gender-based violence and human trafficking in Denver, Colorado. And I contacted her and she graciously agreed to participate in our podcast today. So Becky, welcome to Ending Human Trafficking. Thank you so much for having me. And I I noticed in uh, among the many, many things that you've done, you've also worked with Polaris Project. You created um, a version of the domestic violence power wheel that is directly related to sex trafficking. And I find that really fascinating. But um, you initially started out much like I did working on violence against women issues and family violence issue. When did you begin to cross into human trafficking? What spurred that? Well, what spurred it was actually a case I worked on as a victim witness coordinator. I worked for the Nashville District Attorney's Office. And as a victim witness coordinator, I was in court every day with um, both women and children and also men who had experienced domestic violence and often had worked on cases where there were intersections with domestic violence and sexual violence or um, intimate partner sexual violence and um, child sexual abuse. 
but I hadn't seen cases of sexual exploitation um, and really wasn't looking out for that. Um, but one day I did have a case where I was waiting for um, it to go to trial and was waiting for the, the individual who was set to testify against her batterer who had abused both her and her daughter. And she uh, basically expressed a worry to me. She was very worried about a visit she had had from a vice detective. And as a domestic violence advocate, I was very confused when she said it was a vice detective. I kind of questioned her and said, oh, do you mean a, a domestic violence detective? And said, no, it was a vice detective. And he was asking me a lot of questions about the defendant. Um, and then she, seeing my confusion, um, then disclosed to me that her intimate partner had not only been abusing both her and her child, but had also been forcing her to engage in commercial sex. Wow. And at that point, I didn't really know where to point her, so I felt fairly helpless as an advocate. So how how frequently do you think that actually happens? Well, I, at first, thought it might have been an anomaly. Um, and uh, certainly, you know, talked to our local resources about it there, but it really spurred my interest in human trafficking. And when I went to work for Polaris Project on the national level. Um, I was a part of their National Human Trafficking Resource Center, which is the national hotline on human trafficking. Um, I coordinated tips and referral services in nine states there. And as I started working on the hotline, I really saw those cases come up more and more often. Um, so we didn't even classify them as intimate partner trafficking when I got there, um, but we kept seeing it over and over again. And I would say that it, it certainly happens quite a bit. It's just making sure that we have the lens of seeing that type of sexual abuse also as sex trafficking. Um, and so once we added that lens to the hotline, we did identify about 10% of our calls as um, cases of either intimate partner or familial sex or labor trafficking. So can you um, expand on those terms and define those, maybe give us an example of each? Sure. So um, the first example um, that I gave of the, the woman in court would have been an example of an intimate partner who is forcing their partner to engage in commercial sex. So we will call that intimate partner sex trafficking. Oftentimes that and uh, familial sex trafficking tend to get kind of um, pushed under the term of pimp control trafficking. Um, and so what we tried to do was separate those terms um, and really uh, look at that relationship with the individual and see if there was an intimate partnership. There's a lot of gray area there, which I'm sure I could talk about for much longer than <laughs> 30 minutes. Um, and then familial sex trafficking would be when a family member or relative um, forces another individual into um, some type of commercial sex. So oftentimes in those cases, we would see parents as traffickers, also other older adults, so um, aunts, uncles, um, and grandparents even at times. And we also even saw cases with older siblings. Um, so oftentimes there is an age difference or some type of um, difference in power structure between the individuals who are trafficking members of their family. Um, and then for the labor trafficking side, oftentimes uh, this, again, got into gray areas of what is forced labor versus trafficking versus economic abuse. 
So economic abuse is a term we hear often with intimate partner violence and as part of the power and control wheel. Um, however, often those cases really mirrored cases of, of labor trafficking. But for example, if we had an intimate partner who is forcing their partner to work, um, say at a, a fast food restaurant, was taking all of their wages, picking them up and dropping them off, monitoring them, if they lost their job, they were punished. If they didn't bring home enough money, they were punished. Um, so that we've traditionally called economic abuse. Um, and the, the difficulty has been trying to shift that lens to also recognize that that is a form of labor trafficking. Um, and then the other part of labor trafficking can be when a family member is uh, perpetrating forced labor. So an example of a case is where a parent, for example, is forcing their child to work in a family business. Um, and now that doesn't mean that all family labor is uh, trafficking. We certainly have family members who work on the farm for their families and in family businesses. Um, but these are situations where the child has no choice, where they're work forced to work long hours, um, and where their health and well-being is being threatened by that, by that labor. Becky, I'm always so struck by my naivete and all the things that go on in the world of trafficking and domestic violence. And so I'm, I'm just curious in listening to you talk about all these different aspects of violence and trafficking. Is there, I know the statistics are so poor in many cases on, on tracking many of these things because they go so underreported, but are there any statistics that are indicators for us as to how many situations that are domestic, what we would typically look at as domestic violence, uh, either become or are uh, involved in trafficking as well? Unfortunately, there aren't. Um, mm. Really, the hotline is one of the few places where we started to track those types of cases. Um, and so, as I mentioned, in our first year of tracking that between the years of um, 2010 and um, 2011, we were able to see about 10% of our hotline calls identified as intimate partner or familial trafficking. Oh. Um, and then other research around this has often um, revolved around the idea of domestic violence victims, specifically female victims of intimate partner violence, becoming trafficking victims after they leave a, right. a violent relationship. So it's not the same nexus as a batter who is also a trafficker. Um, so there are a lot of varying statistics on that. One um, that was in uh, one of the tip reports a couple of years ago was that almost 70% of trafficking victims in a particular program in London had reported being victims of domestic violence before they were trafficked. Wow. Um, and then the last is um, one that uh, a study that looked at economic exploitation in intimate partner relationships. Um, and they did find that there's a high rate of economic abuse, but also a high rate of exploitation. Um, so that could mean, um, you know, forcing an individual to work, um, taking their wages, having that type of control um, over that individual. And they did find um, almost 80% of those intimate partner abusive relationships they surveyed did have that economic exploitation. Becky and Sandy, it's just amazing to me how much of a connection that there is between domestic violence and trafficking. So, I mean, it's just such an important topic for us to be talking about today, for sure. 
So how can I explain to someone the difference between intimate partner um, economic abuse and intimate partner economic exploitation? That is a great question. And I think that it's one that um, has a lot of gray area. We oftentimes, when I was working on the hotline, would get calls that really, it was hard to, to place those um, on, you know, a, a certain spectrum. What falls under economic abuse? And when does it, um, you know, for lack of a better term, rise to the level of trafficking or exploitation? We still haven't seen that categorized by any type of prosecution um, mm. on this particular topic. And so it's, it's very difficult to place. Um, but one of the things that we looked for in those cases were very severe economic abuse. So, for example, um, I can give you a, an, an example of a, a case where we had an individual whose intimate partner was forcing both her and her children to work. Um, and he, he was forcing them to beg mm. in the streets every day for money. Wow. Um, and he set a quota for both the mother and the children. And if they didn't meet that quota, he would um, physically abuse the mother in front of the children. Wow. And so... That particular case, there's certainly, I, I would say for myself, previously as a DB advocate, I would think, wow, that was very severe economic abuse. When I went into the anti-trafficking field and I saw cases like that, one thing that really struck me was the kind of denial of that case as a trafficking case because of the relationship between the parties. Mm. Um, and this denial, you know, came from advocates, from law enforcement, from prosecutors. Um, but the key thing to keep in mind is think about whether if that perpetrator wasn't the husband and wasn't the father, if that perpetrator were a stranger, we would have no problem calling that situation human trafficking. Um, so it's kind of breaking down that barrier and seeing you know, how we can put that lens to, to these type of economic abuse situations. It almost reminds me a little, Becky, I know it's not the same situation of the you know, the belief, you know, many, many, you know, generations ago that, uh, you know, rape couldn't happen between, mm. um, you know, married partners and how we've changed our thinking on that, thankfully. But it, it almost sounds like now we have to really extend some of this thinking to really look broader than just calling something domestic violence. Mm. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and a, another aspect of this um, connection sometimes or very often involves some kind of substance abuse. Um, how have you identified that in your study? Sure. I would say that a lot of these cases will, um, there will be that um, kind of searching for that element. Um, you know, it's, in a lot of ways, there's an idea of, you know, how can we imagine that a parent would do this to their child or that a, an intimate partner would do this to someone that they, you know, say that they love. Um, and we did see cases that did have drug abuse. Um, now, that wasn't necessarily present in all or even a majority of the cases. But what I would say for familial sex trafficking, when we saw parents that were trafficking their children, oftentimes there was some type of drug addiction. Um, and so that could be that, you know, they had drug addiction, they might be um, trafficking drugs themselves, 
there might just be general drug exposure within the home. Um, but oftentimes that, there was a nexus there between drug abuse, um, drug sale, and the exploitation of their own children. I think, I think that's probably one of the most um, difficult things to imagine is a parent, because of their substance abuse, um, being in a place where they would sell a child to support their, their addiction. Mm. And um, I think that was one of the most um, difficult encounters in my own journey in family violence and, and learning to address things from the perspective of human trafficking. And so for many people that are in services to kids who are in really difficult circumstances, um, and they say to me, Becky, that um, I don't really have time to address human trafficking. One of the things I try to convince them to look at is this is another lens for some really old problems. And with this lens comes new resources because of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act federally, the UN protocol, many countries that have passed laws, and then here in our own state. We have resources when we um, are able to use this filter that we wouldn't have had ordinarily. Have you encountered that? Right. I would definitely say that was one of the um, the biggest barriers to, to services that we heard um, on the hotline when I worked there. And then also, as I've been working as a consultant and trainer, speaking with individuals who work on issues of child abuse, um, intimate partner violence, on sexual assault and rape, oftentimes there is that response of, you know, we just, we don't have the funding to take on one more thing. And, and sometimes even that trafficking may fit in some aspects of our work, but it's not the core of what we do. Um, and so I think an, another example of how we saw that as on the hotline when we're calling out for resources. There are oftentimes many agencies that had worked on a trafficking case that had then been able to see how related it was to domestic violence or sexual assault and were able to see those connections. But it hadn't been until they had really worked on that case. Um, and so sometimes making the case for human trafficking as a part of services that already exist, that are already victim-centered, and trauma-informed, and where we really need, um, you know, to have services for these victims, it can even come in the way of them having their first case and seeing those connections themselves. But I think it's important to constantly give that message that this really is an extension of of problems we've been seeing for a long time. Um, We just haven't been calling it trafficking. And sometimes the word trafficking, I think, can, can make people a little hesitant um, because it does have so many misconceptions surrounding it. Well, um, in your in your writing, you talk about some of the indicators and assessment um, strategies that people in this area can um, tweak their normal services. So, why don't you give us some of those signs and and um, indicators? Sure. So, with the case that I had mentioned previously that I worked on, after I got done with that case and really was processing it, I started to revisit a lot of the cases I had previously worked on um, and really looked at the indicators that I had seen but not seen um, Mm. that could have pointed to uh, sex trafficking or labor trafficking. 
And so even um, as I'm almost four years away from having worked in that position, I still think of cases where there were indicators of um, potential trafficking. And so with intimate partners and family members, oftentimes the indicators for something like trafficking are going to sound very similar to the indicators we're already looking for to identify abuse. Um, But some of the things that kind of raise those red flags for potential exploitation, whether it's sexually or in um, labor, would be monitoring finances, um, really that person being unable to keep finances, that person being very anxious about keeping their job um, and about what will happen if they don't have that job. Um, Also, it's often very difficult for us to, to talk about sexual abuse with um, victims and survivors that we're working with. But as we build those relationships with individuals, oftentimes sexual abuse that's happened between intimate partners or between within families, um, information can come out from that. And so we also have to be cognizant of potential sexual exploitation that might come out from that. Um, and so some of the statements that we even heard on the hotline were just very broad statements of, you know, he just made me do things I really didn't want to do. Hmm. And while that sounds, you know, that could be anything, but thinking about that in the context of, you know, something that could be abusive sexually that that individual didn't want to do, um, but also that could be exploitative and, um, you know, just exploring what that is and really kind of broadening what our view of an exchange of goods can be. So, one other thing that we saw that I wanted to mention is um, an exchange of an individual for commercial sexual services that wasn't necessarily monetary. Um, and so keeping that in mind where we saw cases of an intimate partner who would um, abuse his partner by saying, you have to um, perform certain sex acts with my friends um, to entertain them hmm. or because they did a certain thing for me and this is you know, paying them back for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not our traditional thinking of, you know, victims walking the track or being advertised on things like Backpage, um, but those informal exchanges are really important. Um, and the last example I'll give of that is a parents who um, were convicted of, of child sexual abuse on their 14-year-old daughter who exchanged their daughter for minivan payments. Oh, Wow. So so something that's, you know, we're, again, not getting that vision of someone on advertised online or on the street, um, but this is something where they couldn't make their car payments, and so they sold their daughter to the minivan dealer. Oh, my goodness. And and that kind of brings us to the idea that there are myths about um, trafficking, just like there are in um, child abuse and family abuse and those kinds of issues. So the first myth that you identified is that traffickers are always strangers to victims and will kidnap them. What is the reality? Well, I would say that this myth is a, is a difficult one to get away from, um, oftentimes because of the media that surrounds human trafficking. Um, and the reality that I could say I saw from the, the national level, from that hotline perspective, was oftentimes traffickers were people that that individual knew beforehand. Mm. Now, whether the trafficker was grooming that person um, as an employer, as a friend, as a boyfriend, um, you know, that was 
sometimes hard to see. Um, but oftentimes it was someone that person trusted um, because just like in domestic violence, um, when someone, and also sexual assault, when someone has a relationship with that person, they have that trust. They maybe even have love um, and very strong bonds with that individual. It makes it much harder to leave down the road when um, when the abuse starts and potentially exploitation starts. Hmm. Well, and I, that just makes me think of local cases here in Orange County that were foreign victims and um, they couldn't, they said they couldn't leave because it would cause problems for their families, members back home who had sent them here on this job um, or for a family member that had used them to pay off the, a debt. And so if they, if they were quote unquote rescued, what would happen to their family members? So their concerns were not just for themselves, but for people who had to my way of thinking, betrayed them as a member of their family. Right, right. And that, that type of control is a very strong type of control. Um, you know, oftentimes we think of ourselves as kind of invincible beings that, you know, we could never be um, fall victim to all of these different types of crimes. Um, but when you have a, a person who is, you know, very cunning as most traffickers and batters and abusers are, um, they're looking for that piece that's really going to keep that person in the situation. So like you mentioned, having, you know, family members who might be impacted is a strong method of control. And, and that the last myth, um, we'll take a minute to look at, you say abusers are jealous. This is a myth and won't exploit for sex. Abusers control economically, but they don't exploit. Why is that a myth? Right. So I think that the, the first part, that abusers are jealous is something that we just kind of have as an understanding in um, especially looking at intimate partner violence. Um, so that is a big red flag for someone who can be abusive. Um, it is a, you know, kind of one of those things that we always want to be on the lookout for when we're talking to people who are being monitored, um, are being asked, you know, when they got off of work, why it took them so long to get home. Um, who is this guy in your phone that you're talking to? So that's a really common um, characteristic of, of a batterer. Um, but the myth part of that is that they won't be exploitative because they are jealous. That they wouldn't sell their girlfriend or their wife to their friend or to a stranger because of that jealous aspect. Mm. Um, but one thing to remember also about abusers is that they also are very controlling and dehumanizing. Mm. Um, and so in thinking of their partner oftentimes as an object, as something that they can control and have do what they want, um, if they see an opportunity for benefit, whether it's economic benefit or some type of informal arrangement with someone, um, they certainly might go to exploiting that individual. So I think the exploitation part is really the myth there. Mm. Becky, you've really opened my eyes just in the last few minutes here of more of the connections here and things that I hadn't thought about before. And I know that many of our listeners who are out there in their communities trying to do whatever they can to bring awareness to this issue and to do what they can in human trafficking uh, maybe haven't considered this connection either. And I'm wondering, um, what would be one or two things that people could do, either uh, something you'd like people to take away as, as, a, as a thought or idea they may not have considered 
or maybe a resource that could get them started on examining this connection uh, more proactively? Sure. Well, I think certainly for people who are working in either the field of human trafficking or the fields of domestic and sexual violence, um, a takeaway that I would really hope for is to really start looking for these signs of these types of cases in, in their casework and maybe even doing a, you know, kind of case review of the mm. cases they've had before, mm. yeah. saying if there was maybe severe economic abuse and how that looked and, um, and what that might have been that they hadn't categorized it as such before. Um, that's a so great idea, Becky. I like that. I, that's a great idea. I'm going to tell other people did the same thing. <laughs> Terrific. And it's it's an easy thing to do, although it does you know it does have that kind of scariness around the word of trafficking. If we really start to think of it as a form of domestic violence, um, in the same way that um, you know trafficking can be a form of domestic violence, that domestic violence can also have forms of trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we you know, take away some of that fear and can really incorporate that into our programs. Um, And then also just um, having domestic and sexual violence and human trafficking um, program providers working together on this issue. So we see around the U.S. that um, oftentimes there are new organizations that are um, coming up with, uh, you know, working on human trafficking that may not have as... um, long of a history as the domestic and sexual violence movement. And the domestic and sexual violence movement can be incredibly helpful to the anti-trafficking movement. Mm. And we see that a lot of times with, um, especially with the sexual violence movement, becoming more and more involved in anti-trafficking. There's certainly a place for domestic violence providers or providers who are working on child abuse to really be at the table working with your um, human trafficking coalition, getting involved with um, being a resource for trafficking victims, um, I think is a great, great next step. And I think another um, another thing that you bring up here is the value of the National Human Trafficking Resource Center is beyond just being a hotline, but it is a resource. And some of those organizations that are getting started in your area that you may not know about, if you call that number, they can give you at least a few connections in your area. And I know that over the years that I've been working on this out in Orange County, I've gotten a number of phone calls that said, the people at the 888-3737-888 number gave me your contact information. And I live in Orange County. Isn't that great? It's a wonderful center. Um, Now, Becky, as we wind down here, how can people reach you? That's a great question. They can um, go to my website, which is just Becky, B-E-C-K-Y, Owens, O-W-E-N-S, Bullard, B-U-L-L-A-R-D dot com. Um, That's my training and consultation website. And I have all the information there on how to contact me. My email address is there, so I won't repeat it here. Um, But I also have an issue brief specifically on this um, this topic on that website that looks at the intersections of domestic violence and human trafficking. So please pull that as a resource. Um, shoot me an email. I would love to um, discuss what you're working on, um, any ways that I can help. And I do um, you know, travel around. I'm based in Denver, but I'd love to do a training or consultation with, with anyone who thinks they might need it. Well, we'll put that website on our on our notes for this show as well. So thank you so much for your time, Becky. We appreciate 
your stories, your expertise, and your passion to end human trafficking. Well, thank you, Sandy, so much for having me. I greatly appreciate it. And I also want to thank Becky. And just to reiterate for our audience that we are going to put all those links for Becky's contact information on our website. This is episode number 40. So when you go to our website, it's gcwj.vanguard.edu. This is, again, episode number 40. You can find all of our information there uh, for this show, the show notes, and the links for getting in touch with Becky. And I also wanted to just before I uh, let us go, Sandy, just wanted to say thank you so much for those of you out there who have taken a moment to write a review for us on iTunes. I know many of you have found this uh, ep- this show on iTunes and you've taken a moment to write a review for us. And we really appreciate that, Not f- not really for us, but because by writing a review and reviewing the show, you help other people to find us in the iTunes store. So thank you for those of you who have done that. If you are an iTunes user and you haven't yet done that, we'd really appreciate it if you take a moment just to go on to iTunes, search for Ending Human Trafficking, and you'll find us just a hit write review, and that will give us an opportunity to reach more people. And uh, Sandy, that's just going to about do it for our time today. Thank you, Dave. And if you want us to address a specific issue, send us an email at gcwj at vanguard.edu. See you next time. Yeah, thanks, Sandy. And also, just a reminder, you can also call in feedback to us too. If you have a comment or question on anything you heard about in the show, anything Becky mentioned, Sandy or I asked about, We'd love to hear that as well. You can always reach us at 714-966-6361 or again, that email address gcwj at vanguard.edu. And we will see you back again in two weeks. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Dave. 